Get your copy of our January-February 2020 issue of Film Comment, featuring our Best of the Decade extravaganza with essays by Dennis Loom, Amy Taubin, Devika Girish, and R. Emmett Sweeney, the top 50 films and key new filmmakers of the 2010s, along with filmmakers, critics, and programmers' picks of the decade. Also, an in-depth interview with Pedro Costa, director of Vitalina Varela, opening at Film at Lincoln Center, and our annual Best of the Year poll, including write-ups of the 20 best films of 2019. Support nonprofit independent film journalism. Support Film Comment. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment, and this is another in our series of Sundance podcasts. We are recording here in Park City, where the Sundance Film Festival is showcasing its annual selection of films of variably independent provenance, Um, and we're just talking about what we've seen and, I don't know, things that are interesting about the festival this year, Um, and... Whatever else comes into our battered minds. Um, so I'm very pleased to be doing this all with... Abby Sun, freelance programmer and writer and occasional film comment contributor. Occasional and very welcome film comment contributor. Uh, and... Devika Girish, assistant editor at Film Comment. And uh, this is... We're sort of further along in the festival. Um, I, I can't say that there have been any, like, big headline-grabbing things going on. Um... Um, Abby, you're actually, you've, you've come from an already a long tour at the uh, Art House Convergence. Uh, I wonder if you can explain what that is a little bit to our, our listeners. Yeah, so Art House Convergence started, I believe, 15, actually, I, I know this, uh, 15 years ago, um, as actually um, a part of a grant of a Sundance Institute program to bring together uh, important operators of art house cinemas around the country. And since that first iteration, it's grown into the one industry conference for art house exhibitors. And now film festivals also attend as well as vendors of services like Eclair Play and also a very large contingent of uh, various variably independent (laughs) distributors, um, folks like um, Zeitgeist Films and um, Magnolia and Film Movement, all the way up to uh, Amazon and Netflix sent publicists. Same goes for attendees. It's a huge variety. Everyone from Film at Lincoln Center yes. um, to uh, like single screen jewel boxes uh, in the middle of the country to uh, people running film series um, out of community centers mm. and things like that. And so, as, as you mentioned, it's it's in Midway, Utah, which is, I guess... About a 30-minute shuttle, 30 right? 30-minute shuttle. So it's an often an initial stop for a, a lot of people who come on, on go on to go to Sundance. Um, I've, I've always kind of liked Art House Convergence, just the very idea of the solidarity of it. And um, so, without further ado, let's, let's dive into the movies we've been seeing. Um, and I think it might be nice to start with a movie that is, uh, you know, doesn't have, have like an enormous profile, but I think for anyone who's at all familiar with um, the filmmaker is definitely pretty highly anticipated. And that would be Time, uh, directed by Garrett Bradley, um, who we actually, uh, Devika, you wrote about um, last year. Yeah, yeah. Um, she had a short called America last year at the festival that, you know, just became one of the best things I saw um, 
in 2019. And, um, and that one was, you know, this, like she was working with archives, like a recently rediscovered, uh, you know, film directed by and starring an um, African-American cast. Uh, and and it, it was a really creative sort of mix of archival footage and then footage that she had shot uh, in New Orleans, like documentary footage that she had shot and sort of this very poetic uh, combination of the two. And uh, her latest film, which is at Sundance here, it's a feature, um, but it still has that, borrows that like kind of template of playing with archives, uh, playing with documentary and then having sort of this stylization that I think is quite unique to Garrett. And it's nice to see this kind of progression in a director's work over the course of a couple of festivals. And so a lot of people like me uh, were kind of primed for this new film, really eager to see what she was going to do. And it's a it's an absolute delight. It's as inventive and radical and um, uh, also emotionally resonant as America, even though it takes on something much more personal and localized. It's the story of a woman named Fox Rich, who for the last two decades has been fighting for the release of her husband from a prison in Louisiana. Um, he was serving a 60 year sentence for a robbery they both committed. Uh, over like two decades ago, uh, just a, a, a sort of relatively minor offense. Uh, oh, it, it was a bank robbery, right? Yeah, okay. it was. A, <laughs> it was a botched bank robbery, but like no one got hurt. You can take that. Okay, fine. That's it. It's, it's my very, my yeah. views on this matter are strong. You're, you're very yeah, for yeah, you're yeah. very revolutionary okay. of mindset. I, yeah, I think you want to liberate the. Well, money. I mean, I, I think that I mean, I think actually, let's let's discuss this actually because I think what the film does by the end is it does immerse you so much yeah. in Fox and the family. They have six sons, um, and their conceptions of freedom and mobility and love. Um, that I think it does actually kind of drag the audience if you weren't already into the stance of being prison abolitionists. It is yeah. very radical. So it does sort of feel like it's not, you know, diminished when it's first introduced, what they right. actually committed. But yeah. And actually there's a, and to that point, you know, the robbery was committed by both of them, but because she was an accessory and because of other, other like legal complications which takes up a big part of the film she only served three years so she got out she was pregnant she already had kids and then spent the rest of the time raising these kids um she started her own business and just like campaigning for the release of her husband and sort of becoming a spokesperson in the community for other uh, incarcerated families mm -hmm. and she maintained she created this home video archive. She filmed all the moments that Rob, her husband, was missing out on. And uh, Garrett, I think she started filming the story without knowing that this archive existed. So she was just kind of filming um, Fox's day-to-day -day life, sort of how her life revolved around, like, these phone calls, waiting for lawyers and judges to get back to her, you know, her kids going to college, all of that. And then discovered that there was this treasure trove of home video. And so then she kind of weaves the two together um, to create like a portrait of how a, a person changes in the course of this period of time and how a relationship survives that sort of separation and how a family uh, is able to kind of stay together as they go through this 
you know, denial of togetherness and intimacy. And the thing is, there are actually scenes in the film where Fox is uh, expressing regret and she's asking for forgiveness in, in church. And it's interesting because the film is kind of showing her to be penitent and sort of like admitting that they made a mistake. But at the same time, the film is able to drive home the point that no mistake deserves this kind of punishment, that incarceration is the kind of punishment that, you know, you can't, there is nothing you can do that earns that sort of inhumane, uh, you know, sort of treatment. And I think what I was really captivated by was that it's it the film is like bringing together these multiple things in a way that I haven't really seen uh, you know in other films uh, and which is this kind of empirical political reality you know which is much larger than the story of these two people and then this really a love story you know and it's really uh, the film is edited and scored in a way that emphasizes that aspect of the story the the romance mm-hmm. that is able to sustain their relationship across all of this the love in their family that kind of keeps them going and then also i think garrett is you know sort of an experimental filmmaker so it's a very stylized film and she it's in black and white and she chooses very interesting angles when she in the footage that she has filmed uh and even the way that she cross cuts footage she plays with time uh, mm-hmm. and temporality in inter- in interesting ways so it's kind of i don't know it manages to be all these different things while still being incredibly moving experience you know i was i was just so drawn into their story and um, it, it just felt so emotionally resonant to me while it was still hitting these political and formal beats. Yeah. I mean, I think what's really extraordinary about this film is the way that it pushes back against how a lot of documentary is filmed and edited these days. Um, in particular, it doesn't use scenes um, purely as plot point to advance the narrative forward, but it really makes us spend time with these subjects but on their terms and that is the other thing that I found really extraordinary about this film was how much it had to say about performance and then how we depict our lives so for instance um, it does start out with an archival um, prologue of sorts um, which is I think quite typical in um, family home video um, documentary prologues in which it's the very first shot. It's Fox setting up the camera, but even within that shot, which is held for much longer, it's not just a signifier that this is the beginning of the film, but it also establishes like two of her sons come in, they play with the camera. What happens, it like holds it and it's really interested. It signals this interest in the family's lived experience. And then the first modern day scene that pops up is actually um, kind of a sort of BTS style um, recording of Fox rehearsing um, uh, a TV commercial that she's about to shoot for like the auto reseller that she works for. Um, And in it, we see her not only rehearsing the actual script and changing it on the spot in ways that are really amazing like in terms of indicating her skills as a storyteller and as a salesperson but also um it's her demanding from the director of this um shoot that she must be able to see the footage as they're making the shoot she wants to be in charge of how her image is presented um and that is like unfolded all throughout it creates this 
amazing intimacy while still maintaining privacy of the family um, in that all of the intimate scenes are actually of them getting ready for public appearances, for instance. But the way that they're filmed, it's super close up, very warm. Mm -hmm. The editing is constantly surprising. The way the archival, like Devika said, is enfolded within it is not as purely illustrative, but it also has kind of these rhetorical flourishes of emphasize, like recalling our memories back to something that was earlier in a way that's sort of sideways. Um, yeah. This is a, yeah. And actually, the, you, you brought up that uh, scene where the BTS shot and kind of this notion of performance that was also one of my main takeaways from the film because I, I saw it before I knew, you know, what it was about. And I didn't fully know what how much of it was documentary, if there was any reenactment. And that scene caught me off guard because I, then I was wondering, is, part, is some of this like performed and reenacted? And obviously, eventually I realized it wasn't, but it then, it, it made me pay attention to the performativity that has become so essential to Fox's life um, in the sense that what she that, is a public figure and yeah, we see her often. But also yeah. she has she has had to also become that kind of public figure, you know, in order to not just like be the figure that she is for her family, but also in the process of fighting this fight. Yeah. And I think that the film kind of in the beginning, I think it does make you a little bit I don't want to say suspicious, but it makes you unsure of how much is... Because there's also scenes of her motivational speeches and lectures that she gives at colleges. Uh, there's some scenes of her son, uh, you know, in a school council debate, like he's he's running for school council. So there's these, like, scenes that are very performative, where, you know, she is presenting a version of herself. She's telling a story. And the confusion that that creates initially, I think, becomes a very import important rhetorical point in the film, which is you compare it with the sort of very unfiltered, uh, her very unfiltered presence in the early archival footage, and then you know, her presence as a very, she she has a kind of constructed persona in the later images and that it's kind of like what happens yeah. over this period of time when you're fighting the same fight and when you're forced to kind of create this uh, this yeah. armor in order to, um, to really survive that kind of separation while still having hope that something will emerge from all your efforts. Yeah, it does make, I suspect, fact we may have to move on soon but there's a there's there's one scene in which it starts out like this repeated there are repeated scenes of fox um on the phone waiting for news um and the last one that appears in the film turns into this moment you see her go through the range of emotions from like um resignation like starting still in the performative aspect going through resignation to like sadness to rage and some sort of settlement after that that is profoundly moving yeah no that that is it is really it's a scene that breaks it breaks the rhythm of, of, of the movie a little and and just when you thought there wouldn't there couldn't be another layer of, of the depth of the motion in the film it gives you another one and only makes it feel more genuine and and you have the you know feeling that you're even closer to what they might be feeling um yeah, just a great movie in terms of just duration and, and strange how it's able to mix um, all the, the yeah the, the cutting in of, of archival, but also a sense of waiting that 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 much of the movie is and and and, and to be riveting throughout. Um, two other things I want to mention about it is that I thought a little bit about the movie Love and Diane, 
uh, when I was seeing it. Um, I always like to mention that movie when I can. Um, and also, I just want to applaud the movie for, I mean, I guess this is a spoiler in terms of content, but there is a scene of reunion at the end, and it's, it's a very loving reunion, and it gets, a little, it gets physical between her and her long-separated um, husband, and I really appreciated that. That just, again, another the movie manages to surprise you again, and I have to say I kind of appreciated it a lot here at Sundance because I feel like I'm seeing a lot of movies at Sundance um, where I don't know that the kind of physical aspect of romance is 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 skirted around in some way as and and that ends up making a lot of movies here feel a little conservative to be honest um, yeah, I mean she it really embraces intimacy and the power yes. of intimacy and mm-hmm. the politics of intimacy and so true yeah um, so that is time uh, directed by Garrett Bradley um, and let's let's talk about a, a movie that had you know maybe is a bit more of a you know it stars Elizabeth, Elizabeth Moss. It's directed by Josephine Decker, um, who after Madeline's Madeline, which showed here as well, um, this is sort of an anticipated film. Also, it's I guess you know if, if you have any interest in the author, it's it's a fairly uh, interesting prospect. Shirley Jackson, perhaps best known for her short story The Lottery, um, which is a kind of uh how should you say <laughs> um not so rosy picture of of of, of uh, american community and uh, say let's say a dogville-esque uh, vision of uh, <laughs> the american um, um you know body politic um and this is a fiction film um at the screening i was at uh, decker gave us sort of a, a regular intro and then at the end <laughs> said this is a fiction film, just to clarify. <laughs> so, um, yeah, what happens is, is, I mean, it's related to, to um, Jackson's life just because she was a writer. And uh, they, they reference the lottery. In fact, the lottery somehow almost seems to trigger uh, a moment of intimacy in this movie. Um, so, Devika, what did you think of, of Shirley? <laughs> um, what did I think of the movie? Did I think of the movie? <laughs> Uh, no, that is a little too harsh. <laughs> I was really looking forward to this um, yeah. because I enjoyed Madeline's Madeline, which I have said on this podcast yes, before, and I stand by that. Um, and I thought that um, I thought it would be interesting to see sort of Josephine Decker's style meet, you know, this the story about the life of this beloved writer. And what really I was curious to see was, you know, how it would portray what it means to be a difficult genius as a woman, especially in that period of time. Yeah. And that is kind of what the movie, when it opens, that that's what it like, that is, I guess, the meat of the film. And, mm. um, and Elizabeth Moss just seems like the perfect actress for that. Um, when the film opens, there's, uh, basically a very young couple. One of them is a, a PhD candidate and his wife who are going to stay with Shirley and her husband, Stanley Hyman, uh, for a period of time. Played by? Uh, played by Michael Stuhlbarg. And the young couple are played by Logan Lerman and Odessa Young. You're laughing, Abby. I didn't realize that Logan Lerman, every man's, uh, not every girl's, I guess, sorry, uh, boyfriend was in this movie. <laughs> uh, you know, he is actually every girl's boyfriend in this movie, kind of. Um, oh, yeah, the Shakespeare Society. He's, yeah, he's, which is to say he's adulterous, which, 
you know, is a theme in the film. Um, but they move in with Shirley and Stanley, and Logan Lerman's character is like an apprentice for Stanley, the uh, he who is a professor um, at the local university. And they kind of get embroiled into a much more intimate and long relationship with this with Shirley and Stanley than they had signed up for. Um, and the we are sort of. Uh, the Odessa Young's character, Rosie, is the audience surrogate. So through her, we get to know Shirley. We get to know the peculiar dynamics of Shirley and Stanley's relationship. Um, Shirley's working on her novel, Hangs a Man, which is inspired by the disappearance of a local college girl. Mm-hmm. And she's kind of very obsessed with that. She also has writer's block and, you know, kind of mental illness. She's very depressed. She can't get out of bed to write. And she's very, very cranky and just sort of absurd and erratic. And there was a scene early on that, you know, immediately endeared me to the film. And I I was so interested in it because there's a scene in which Stanley is has to like kind of baby and coddle Shirley to get her out of bed, get her to eat food and get her to her desk. We've all been there. We have all been. Exactly. And I thought to myself, I cannot let my boyfriend see this film. <laughs> but, you know, it is. It, it was very refreshing to, like, see that kind of the very difficult process of writing, especially if when combined with mental illness and the challenge of sustaining that within a relationship uh, portrayed in that way. You don't get to see women portrayed in that light in the movies very frequently. But I don't. See, that's what I wanted the whole movie to be. Um, and it goes in all these other directions and in classic kind of Josephine Decker style. It's all very kind of cryptic and erotic. And uh, there's like these flashes of dreams and flashbacks. And you don't really like always know what you're watching, whether it's reality, whether it's uh, what, you know, Shirley's like fabulation, because she's also like writing throughout the film. Um, whether it's, yeah, whether it's hallucinations. Mm-hmm. And and there's like all these other strands emerge, you know, Stanley is like your classic um pretentious male genius uh, who they have a codependent relationship and he's like sort of like borderline abusive and adulterous but then they also seem to have a genuinely tender relationship at points and um rosie and what's what was the name Rosie and Fred's relationship also starts to kind of fall apart and in many ways resemble Shirley and Stanley's relationship right. so there's all these things that happen but i think there, it just, at some point, it's like the movie is bringing all these elements together with like, it looks beautiful. It has all these interesting sort of cuts and angles and interesting emotional turns. And so you think, oh, this is a, an interesting, complex, like uh, elliptical film. But it's not actually doing anything with these elements. There's nothing. It doesn't have anything real to say about writing you know, there's some a couple lines thrown in about how hard it is to be a woman and how hard it is to be a girl in this world. And they're pretty surface level. You know, it's not really getting at anything deeper about that experience. It's not really getting at anything deeper about the muse writer relationship, which which it also flirts with because they uh, Shirley and Rosie develop a kind of erotic fixation with each other. And it just feels like kind of forced provocation to me, you know, Um 
so yeah, I, I just ended up then being sort of disappointed. It felt insubstantive, very strained by the end. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, yeah, I think it feels affected and strained because it gets all these elements together and then nothing actually happens after that. Get your copy of our January-February 2020 issue of Film Comment, featuring our Best of the Decade extravaganza with essays by Dennis Lim, Amy Taubin, Devika Girish, and R. Emmett Sweeney, the top 50 films and key new filmmakers of the 2010s, along with filmmakers, critics, and programmers' picks of the decade. Also, an in-depth interview with Pedro Costa, director of Vitalina Varela, opening at Film at Lincoln Center, and our Best of the Year poll, including write-ups of the 20 best films of 2019. Plus, Alex Ross Perry on screenwriting, Phoebe Chen on NYFF sensation Martin Eden, Albert Serra on the scandalous Liberté, along with the reviews, articles, and columns that make every issue of Film Comment a must-read. Support nonprofit, independent film journalism. Support Film Comment. Yeah, I, 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 I have to agree. I think it, it sort of got, it sort of got more shallow as it went along because I, I didn't get a, a very complex sense of of Jackson or or and you know, or the other character really, really and my it just felt it felt like kind of a sort of cosmetic look at the, at the period it didn't feel very lived in um, and yeah it's a shame Elizabeth Moss is is kind of in these glasses which are a big part of her kind of um, obstructive um, persona as, as as the writer in in the movie um, but yeah, I don't know. It just didn't really um, achieve I mean, liftoff. And Michael Stuhlbarg is kind of playing this kind of plummy intellectual character. I feel like he's he's played a lot before, so not a lot of surprises there. And just ended up hitting a lot of cliches. And you also watch it realizing the cliched expectations, or I realize the cliched expectations. Sometimes I was bringing to things and then seeing them satisfied. So um, specifically. Right. The various ideas about the difficult writer and the and the husband who is going to challenge her and and want to see the draft. You know, it just you felt like you're it was a script you had seen before, and um, yeah, not really getting much further than that. And and I thought some of the uh, cryptic aspects felt um, I don't know sanded down. Maybe it would have been better if it was more you know bonkers. Um, you know, as it is, I just come upon the single word suggestive. That's the kind yes. of elusive, elusive, you know, and right. yeah. and I think it like treats uh, Shirley as a curiosity a little bit, and it's like yeah. it, it is very. The film seems very enamored with the idea of her as a symbol for something, but I I wanted to actually kind of live more in her as an emotional being and yeah you know it, it the film kind of revels a little too much in how erratic and hurt and pained and strange she, she is it seems to kind of be a little almost smug about the fact that it's showing this kind of character but yeah. i also wanted to get closer to her um and that didn't really happen for me yeah and it's a shame i mean the the structure of the screenplay is this kind of old device of I knew a writer or I lived with a writer, which, you know, it's just, there's always a limit to, to that. Um, I mean, I, I have to say like the first five, 10 minutes were very interesting. I really thought it was intriguing how bold it was that basically Rosie reads the lottery and then immediately takes Fred to the, uh, they're on the train and immediately takes Fred to the, you know, um, to, to the lavatory on the train. And 
Um, and she's turned on. She's turned on by, and and that gets you a sense of the subversion, subversiveness. Um, but after that, I just yeah. So we don't have to belabor it. Yeah. I really want to applaud that there is a movie about Shirley Jackson, and and that it kind of went all in and has Elizabeth Moss playing the role. That's intriguing. Um, but also Elizabeth Moss, I'm a little wondering if filmmakers seem to be a little too enamored of showing her in close-up doing her a kind of crazy eye routine um you know uh that's happening a little too much i feel like i've seen with her and she's a terrific actress so um i i just i just care for the fate of her career that's all me too i think she was she's a little bit underserved this is like such a perfect role for her and um yeah i think uh I just wish because there there were certain scenes. There's a scene in which she's trying on clothes when she finally decides she's going to leave the house for the first time after two months to go to a party, and she's crying while trying on these clothes in front of a mirror, you know. And uh, she plays that I think really beautifully without yeah. making it very overt. And she's someone that I think can do the kind of crazy, crazy um, difficult woman, but also the really tender side of things very well and I don't think that both coexisted as much as they should have in this film so I, yeah. I just kind of um, yeah I, I, I wish better writing for her <laughs> yeah yeah and then, then there's also this unfortunate echo of who's afraid of Virginia Woolf and the kind of dueling you know university couple um, which doesn't do this movie any favors um, so yeah I mean they're also like a couple of the the kind of fanciful lyrical you know m- magic realism sort of touches here and there again maybe it'd be better if the whole thing was totally off the wall but at any rate um that's Shirley directed by Josephine Decker who I'm sure we'll be seeing you know directing more big productions I wonder Abby uh if you could tell us a bit about uh, a film that might not be on people's radar um by the Fair to say, experimental filmmaker Sky Hopinka. Yeah, so this is Sky's uh, first feature, um, which I believe is pronounced Maine, towards the ocean, towards the shore. Um, and Sky was here last year at Sundance um, with uh, Fainting Spells, which is a very, um, I would say, very much in the avant-garde tradition. Um, It mixes together um, the archival and the observational and um, kind of material processing of the digital video itself, um, as well as like script writing text that's in the film. It starts with a prologue that makes it clear sort of the... um, fictional or um, created aspects of the film operating on many different levels um, and is very much about mythologies and um, what perhaps appears as authentic and what doesn't. Um, And he's made a series of, made many shorts before that. Um, I was introduced to him with Dislocation Blues, um, another film that played many experimental festivals. Um, But with this feature, um, I actually think this is his most accessible work. Um, that I've seen. It is uh, being presented in New Frontiers, and it is one of um, two feature-length films in New Frontiers this year. Um, 
just because it's a new frontier doesn't necessarily mean that it's um, super experimental. For instance, um, Kristen Johnson's Camel Person was actually a new frontiers film really? years ago. Yeah, um, that's on my decade best list. Yeah, <laughs> um, but so okay. So what what this film actually is is it's essentially interviews with two different um, characters, both of whom are indigenous, just like Sky is. Um, and um, they are talking about various things, but the loosely connected threads are about the cycle of life and death, about um, mythologies of the creation of the world, and also their own family relationships and their relationship um, to the land around them. And the footage is, um, is, is purely observational for the most part. Um, it includes things like actual sit-down interviews with um, the subjects, although filmed in not talking head fashion. Um, it includes um, footage of um, rituals and of ceremonies in their daily lives. It includes them um, walking around ostensibly showing the camera, um, showing Sky Hopinka himself, um, the world that surrounds them. Um, it's very much playing um, with it's not I, I actually don't even think that this film is playing with documentary convention because it seems utterly uninterested in 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 following anything um, that might be taken for granted um, in filmmaking, such as having like a um, narrative structure or what should be shown when when a character is talking about something or the other. And it's not even really that interested in kind of logical through lines, even in the same scenes. Um, each subject is allowed um, to hold multiple realities and complexities um, and to be perhaps by you know, my typical standard to be a little bit contradictory um, in their statements and what they're saying. Um, it's also completely uninterested in generating context for a viewer that doesn't know what they're watching at first. It's um, pretty uninterested in... There, there are moments where um, Sky's, like, even more, like, experimental background with playing with what types of cameras are being used and what the video looks like appears but um, it's a really profoundly moving experience I do think that a lot of its ideas unlike Sky's other films are present in the surface in the text itself in the narration um, so I think this is a really really great introduction to his work and um, yeah, yeah what he's interested in and it, it, this is something that I guess I wish was showing like more on Main Street, so to speak. <laughs> it's kind of far flung the screenings, right? Or aren't they? I don't know. Um, Maybe I, I'm wrong. I don't know. I yeah, actually, I don't know where New Frontiers is screening this year. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. Perhaps I have just calumnied the entire Sundance <laughs> Film Festival. Um, but that is Mayne mm. Sky Hapinka. So, and that will probably bring us to the end although we did want to just give a shout out to an uh, Iranian film yes only fair yes I I in particular want yes, to give please. a shout out um to um uh a film called Yalda a night for forgiveness it is in the world dramatic competition um I guess it's what we would consider a small film and that it's not necessarily by a filmmaker who's very anticipated in the U.S. although he was originally a very celebrated documentary filmmaker whose first fiction feature premiered 
in the Kanzan at Cannes. Um, so he is not an unknown. This film got lots of support from European funding agencies and seems to have been workshopped um, quite a few times. But this is an extremely interesting film if you're considered uh, or concerned at all about debates in documentary and in screen culture and reality TV right now because it centers around a fictional reality TV show just one night, kind of a single location film. Um on the night of Yalda um, festival, um, in which um, the 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 participants in this reality show are actually, um, and this follows one in particular who is a woman who murdered her husband, um, and because of Iran's eye for an eye legal system, um, she can plead for forgiveness from the death penalty which she's been sentenced to from the closest living relative of um, the person that she murdered, which in this case is the daughter of her ex-husband. Um, this film, it's it's perhaps overly scripted, I would say, um, in the sense that it's extremely intent on making every aspect like a gray moral area and bringing complexity. There's plot twists thrown every here in there but um to me i found it to be a really watchable thriller that also made me disturbed while watching it because of the subject matter mm. because the very premise of the the show is that the more i mean it's a tv show for profit broadcaster so the more people that they get that's their goal as well while the producer is constantly yeah. saying we're doing this to save your life um, there's one segment, for instance, in the show that they would turn to a few times. Um, they have this shtick where um, they have like a texting platform where the live viewers um, can vote on whether or not they want um, Mariam, who's the main character, to be forgiven by Mona, the daughter of her ex, her former husband. And if they reach a certain threshold of votes, um, then the the blood money that Mariam would have to pay if she is forgiven um, and spared the death penalty will be covered by the show's sponsors. So um, it sounds ridiculous and it appears as this overwhelming sensory experience because it's a variety show amongst other things. There's in-show like celebrity cam cameo appearances. There's a live studio audience that participates. Um, and then there's all of these other plot twists. But to me, like it really handles it deftly. One crucial scene in the end, it continues, it starts before the show starts and it continues after the show ends. Um, and there's a moment where Mariam um, picks up a pair of scissors um, and actually everyone in my screening groaned and one man actually shouted no at the screen. <laughs> I think because everyone's mind where, went where my mind went, which is that like now because it's immediately after she has an argument with mm -hmm. Mona. And my mind immediately went, oh, no, now this film is going to buy into its worst impulses and we're going to see a murder on screen. But then what she does with the pair of scissors is actually quite... It made me wonder why it was so surprising to me what she actually mm. does with the pair of scissors. Um, and it made me actually question like my bloodthirst in watching the film and why I had spent, you know, the last 90 minutes watching this character try to speak her truth um, and then not actually buying into that, but going straight again to the stereotype of a murderer and what I think women are capable of. So, wow, this is yeah, this is a movie. And it's like 90 minutes long and all of this happens. This is this is great. Um so Yalda, you heard it here. 
first or second, but at any rate, you heard it here. So do see Yolda when you get a chance. Um, and uh, Devika, did you want to add? I, I just didn't enjoy it that much, but um, I think a little bit because of how obviously spelled out everything felt in this fictional reality show. And I think it maybe that's why also it succeeds in some ways because it's able to really capture what makes reality shows and their manipulation of emotion and melodrama and their like visual ugliness also, you know, uh, really well. But for me, it was like there wasn't enough, you know, it, it felt a little bit like there wasn't enough kind of directorial distance from that conceit of the reality show. And the, I, it just that got, it was reinscribing the very things. Yeah. That it yeah. Was because critiquing. even the things that were happening in the control room were sort of so melodramatic. And for me, it felt like they were falling into conventions of certain like kinds of women's like TV melodrama. And I didn't think that there was enough of that. Uh, meta-narrative distance there and it also just the visually I just found it very difficult to sit through and you as I said you can argue that that's in some ways a success of the film that it manages to capture um, that overstimulating and like sort of brightly like washed out lit the the aesthetic of reality shows but I just it, it, it was just it just became that after a point for me and so yeah but you know, I think what you said about it is more interesting than, than my reservations with it. So, listeners, just, you know. Listeners, positivity in the world <laughs> for tonight. Yeah. Vote, vote Yolda. Yeah. On, on, on your ballot. Um, all right. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our, our latest installment. Um, thank you to everyone who's keeping up or if you're tuning in for the first time. Subscribe so you can hear more. Uh, among other things, we have an interview with Dee Reese. Um, as well as one or two other possible interviews or reports coming up. Um, definitely more discussions like these, too. So, um, without further ado, I'm going to bid adieu. Um, but first, thank you both for your brilliance. Oh, thank you. No, thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. Get your copy of our January-February 2020 issue of Film Comment, featuring our best-of-the-decade extravaganza with essays by Dennis Lim, Amy Taubin, Devika Girish, and R. Emmett Sweeney, the top 50 films and key new filmmakers of the 2010s, along with filmmakers, critics, and programmers' picks of the decade. Also, an in-depth interview with Pedro Costa, director of Vitalina Varela, opening at Film at Lincoln Center, and our annual Best of the Year poll, including write-ups of the 20 best films of 2019. Support nonprofit independent film journalism. Support Film Comment.